He's a career law enforcement officer. He started in police work at the age of 19. A couple of very, very traumatic incidents had a profound impact on him, his personal life, and his career path. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. We are thrilled to partner with Shatterproof at FHE the world-renowned treatment program for first responders because, at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420 or online at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. Under programs, you'll find details about Shatterproof. Calling us from Texas, we have Michael Laidler on the phone. Michael is a career law enforcement officer. He has been in the business since he was 19. Yeah, he started as a police officer in Tallahassee, Florida, at the ripe old age of 19. Michael, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Jay. Before we go into your career, uh, I want to thank you for your service, but I also want to let people know a little bit about you. Michael has gone into federal law enforcement. He is a speaker. He has a book coming out. Go to his website, michaelalader.com. It's spelled L-A-I-D-L-E-R. Michael, First of all, the thought of going into police work at the age of 19 kind of blows my mind. Yes, I actually had the passion from when I was a young man in the 90s, and I saw the O.J. Simpson trial, and that's kind of where all of it started out for me. It was something about that chase, something about the trial that just made me want to become actually a detective for the L.A. Police Department. And I didn't really know what that meant as a kid, but as I grew older, I continued to look at a career in law enforcement, and ultimately, at the age of 19, I was given that opportunity to do it. I can't even tell you what I was doing at 19. For number one, it's so long ago, I don't remember. Number two, I guarantee it wasn't worthwhile. I wasn't doing anything great. Yes, and I do believe that when the opportunity came up, it was the right time. I did not know I was going to be a police officer at 19. I planned for, you know, the average age, I think it's between 22 to 24, give or take. Usually when someone finished college or they've went through two other careers, they do it. But I got really lucky and I was fortunate to have that chance at that time. And since then, it's been an amazing lifestyle just being in law enforcement. Many states, they have different requirements. In my state, Maryland, you had to be 21. So I, I was 21 in the academy, turned 22 uh, when I hit the streets. And, and you know what? I thought I had it going on. I thought I knew everything, like most 20, 21, 22-year-olds. And really, I was not prepared for what was heading my way. I thought I knew. I thought I had an idea of how violent it was going to be, how much trauma is going to be, but I really did not understand the impact and how much and how severe it was going to be. 
Yeah, Jay, I, I think for a lot of us, especially at the younger age, I know me being 19, although I was raised in a busy city like Miami, Florida, I still did not know and understand the pressure of being a law enforcement officer until I actually put the uniform on and hit the streets at 19. And no matter how much training I got at the time, it just didn't seem like enough maturity, life experience, just navigating all that through life. It, w- it was definitely a challenge for me. And I can still see it being a challenge for anybody anywhere at that young age, just because it, it's hard to explain it in the book or Brother, hear about I, I it. I can tell TV. you, I think it's a challenge for anybody, regardless of their age. I and mean, the more you do it, I think that, that the more of an impact it takes on you, the more of a toll it takes on your for lack of better words, your humanity, your psyche, all those things. Seeing the worst of people, what they can do to each other all the time, you can't help but be dinged up. Yes, it does take a big mental toll. And I I think as I've grown older, I've learned how to train myself and develop my skill set in that area of getting beat up mentally and taking all the dings and the bruises. And I I say for anybody, you just got to really train yourself and understand that there are problems you're going to see it's just you got to know how to handle them before they happen because if you don't that's where you suffer at well i'm glad you brought that up because i look back as you're saying hindsight is 2020 i look back at my career and i can see when i began to change i can see when the things as i say began to crack a little bit and before things got really bad at that time i couldn't see it so I want to go back. You start your law enforcement career in Tallahassee, Florida. You're 19 years of age. You think you're prepared for this. And you go out there and, like most people, you do the job because you want to do good stuff to help people. Yeah, that's definitely always the goal, to protect and serve and to build our community up. And although I thought I was ready, there was experiences that I went through that kind of showed me I wasn't ready. Fortunately, I didn't take those experiences to a, a level to where I would harm myself or harm somebody else, but some of the responses wasn't as positive as they would be now. But back then, without any kind of training and minimal life experience, it was definitely tough looking at some of those events that are, are high stress. And the truth is, you still sound like a very young guy. I know you're not as young as you sound, but about how old are you? Oh, right now I'm 36. I'm going to tell you right now, you're a puppy compared to the guys like me. I'm a, I'm officially a geezer. I never thought I'd be this age, Michael. If you'd asked me when I was 22-year-old street cop, hey, what's it going to be like when you're 60s? What? Forget about it. So to be where I'm at now and to have this conversation with you and to look at it from someone in their 30s and to go back to the, your late teens, early 20s, it's kind of enlightening. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Would it be safe to say that... In a department like Tallahassee, which is in Florida, the, the capital of Florida, and it's also a big college town, was it more violent than you thought it would be, more traumatic than you thought it would be? I think for anybody that comes in a town of even size of Tallahassee, where you know it's the capital, a lot of colleges, I think that there's more violence than what people realize that's on our streets. And we're not like a Chicago or a Miami or a L.A., but... There is a lot of risk for anybody in any city that puts it on. And once you put that uniform on, you actually see the violence. So, yes, there is a lot of violence. There's homicides. There's robberies. There's sexual assaults. All the things you can think of in a place like Tallahassee. And at times, they, it was said that the crime rate was higher per capita in places like Tallahassee. 
but it's hard to tell because it's not a big city. Well, th- see, one of the big misconceptions even I had is the big cities have rather large departments. So the smaller cities have less manpower, and you want it being subjected and exposed to just pretty much the same amount of violence, same amount of trauma. And people need to remember Cities like Tallahassee, even further east, like Lake City, Florida, and Gainesville, Florida, there was a serial killer named Ted Bundy who preyed on lots of people in that area. Just because it's a smaller city doesn't mean it's immune from violent crime. We're talking with Michael Laidler. He's a career law enforcement officer. Started at 19. When we return, we're going to talk about a couple of really traumatic incidents that had a big impact on his career and his career path. Also, be sure to check out his upcoming book and more details about him online at michaelalaidler.com. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420 or online at fhehealth.com. Return our conversation with Michael Laidler on the Law Enforcement Show. Michael is a career law enforcement officer. He's in his 30s. He's a young guy. But he's been at this since he was 19. So when you look at the scope of it, it's a long period of time. Check out his website, michaelalaidler.com. It's spelled L-A-I-D-L-E-R. And details about his upcoming book will be there as well. So you started in law enforcement. First of all, you're, you're raised in Miami, correct? Yes, sir. And then you moved into a career in law enforcement in Tallahassee. And Tallahassee must seem like the sleepy south in your mind compared to Miami. Absolutely. You're, you definitely, when you look at the map, you don't usually look at Tallahassee outside of it being the capital because you have other large cities such as Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Pensacola, Jacksonville. So when you hear of Tallahassee, you just don't give it the same credit that you would the big cities. But there are a lot of things that go on in Tallahassee, just there, like the other ones. There sure are. And, and for people who are not familiar with Florida... It's a, a different state. I, I live in Florida. I love Florida. I live in South Florida on the East Coast, and I call it South Yorkadelphia because you've got a heavy New York, Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia influence. On the West Coast, you've got Chicago, Detroit, Upper Midwest influence. Then you go up to like above Gainesville and Tallahassee, and that is the deep South. So it's kind of reversed. Yes, it's definitely different because when you – when you just look at it, you're like, oh, I, it's, there's no way that something can be going on here. But then you get into the environment, you kind of see the day-to-day activity, especially from a police officer stance. You're like, oh, man, I do have a lot of things that are going on that I see the bigger cities going through. And kind of preparing your mind just has to be as similar because, like we said before, it's less officers but the same amount of calls. 
same right. amount of ratio of right. violence. Exactly. So uh, let's talk about a couple specific incidents. I, we, we did talk a little bit. Of, you have two things in your career in particular you want to talk about. Let's talk about the very first one. Perfect, Jay. Yeah, it's, it's something that is probably 15 years ago at this point. I was about 20, 21, 22, and that age range right there. And I remember I was working the four to two shift in Tallahassee. That was one of the common shifts. We called it swings. And we got a call about a traffic crash, which is not uncommon. And it was on Appalachian Parkway, which was a major road in Tallahassee. We heard it was a traffic crash with injuries. So we go there, lights and sirens, try to get there quickly and safely. And as soon as I pull up, I see a van that flipped on its side and it slipped on this driver's side. And I get out and then the other, and the other officers that are in my area, they get out too. So there's about four to five of us and we all kind of look around like, well, we're here. The fire department's not here. Paramedics aren't here. What do we need to do? And when we're looking around, they look at me and say, well, you're the young guy. You're the lightest of us. So guess what? And I'm looking at them thinking, what do you, guess what? What? I was like, Hey, we're putting you through the window. I was like, what do you mean you're putting me through the window? So needless to say, within about 10 seconds, I saw out of my, all my gear on, my, my standard polyester uniform, my vest, my belt, and they lifted me up and put me in through the passenger window what was open. And as they held onto my legs, they dropped me down as, long, as far as they could. And my responsibility was to stop the bleeding. There was a woman that was trapped in the vehicle because when it flipped, her arm was outside of the window. Oh, no. So she couldn't go anywhere. As I'm using towels and whatever they can hand me to apply pressure to her arm so she wouldn't bleed out, I vividly remember her pulling out a son, or excuse me, pulling out a photo of her son and just saying, Ayudame, Ayudame, my hijo, or mi hijo, just saying, Help me, help me, my son. And all she wanted to do was live long enough to go see her son. She didn't know what was next for her. I didn't know what was next for her. So as we sat there uh, waiting for the medics to get there and the firefighters, my partners, they do what they do best next. They try to break the window out and they're trying to do that. And a few minutes passed, everybody started to show up, all the other emergency responses and they get the window out. We get her out. But based on what we did that day and that time, me getting to the vehicle, my partners keep me in there, me applying pressure, we were able to save her life. She had, she did have to have her arm amputated, but we allowed her opportunity to go see her son. And at that time, I didn't realize how much of an impact it would have on me. I didn't have any children at the time, but I can only imagine if I had a son at the time or if I had any kind of kids or if I was around a lot of kids, the kind of impact it would have had on me, like as a parent, but just as a person, just like all she wanted to do, all she wanted to do was survive. And it was between me, that towel in her arm on what was going to happen next. And there was a real impact that I really didn't know how to handle. Besides just nobody talked to me about it. We didn't debrief about it. It was one of those like, okay, next call. Uh, so that's what we did even too. to this day, I think about that call. What I'm going to ask you is, is and I, I wrote something for social media, for the Law Enforcement Radio Show Facebook page about I lied many times as a cop. And I'm not talking about in court. I'm not talking about nefarious reasons or corruption. I, I lied to people that were dying. And quite often, the last thing that someone saw was the face of a, a in my case, a Baltimore police officer, and we're lying to them. Hang in there. Help's on the way. You're going to be okay. It's not that bad. 
I know you had to have the conversation with her, whether it was a different language or not, you had to be able to convince her that she had a chance. How difficult was that for you to do that? Thinking about it now, and even back then, that was tough because I didn't know what was next for her. I didn't know. I had to display a level of confidence just for me to believe, for me to give her enough energy for her to believe. Because if I didn't give her that reassurance, who knows how she would have reacted? Who knows how she would have behaved just based on that? Because we know panic really sets in for a lot of things. And I mean, she couldn't go anywhere. Like physically, she could not move. So I had to reassure her. And I mean, I, I was very optimistic about it. I couldn't have been confident because I don't even know. I didn't know if they can get her out or not. I didn't know. I didn't know if we were going to save her life or not. We did, but it was very tough convincing myself to convince her on something that I didn't know. Plus, you're, you're inside the van in a very unnatural position trying to administer aid. Look, I know that you were trained in first aid and emergency response like we were. A lot of things. And over the years, they've gotten better. But one thing that we didn't get taught, how to handle the aftermath. And one of the things that I used to do, Michael, and I try to explain to people, you get a hot call for whatever it might be. Let's just say it's an armed person or it's a shooting or a rape in progress or, in your case, a, a, a really bad accident with injuries. And you start going through a mental checklist in your mind of things you've got to do when you get there. And first and foremost is get there. You said it. Get there safely. Get there in one piece uh, and don't create another situation. I'm sure that that checklist went through your mind as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I. Once you've done it, and although I was still young, I was a pup, I was all that stuff. I was a rookie in so many ways. After you've been driving continuously, you go through the training, you go through in-service training, you go through all the things you've got to do. Okay, could I blow through this light to get there to go save this person's life or to see what's going on? I can, but like you said, Jay, I, if I do the wrong thing, I create another hazard, then I've created an accident. Absolutely. If we I can't have that. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We are talking with Michael Laidler. Be sure to check his website, michaelalaidler, dot com. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Flintstone Media has been the digital messaging bedrock of several brands and businesses, serving as a highly resourceful podcast production house and consultancy firm for over six years. Work with a leader in the industry and add a new podcast to your brand's content offerings. From show development and setup through recording and distribution, Jemmy will lend her experience launching dozens of podcasts and producing over a thousand episodes, making creating your show a simple and easy turnkey process for you. Visit FlintstoneMedia.com for podcast samples. That's FlintstoneMedia.com. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com.
is a law enforcement show. Return our conversation with Michael Laidler. He's calling us from Texas, a federal law enforcement officer. He's been in law enforcement since he was 19. Be sure to check out his website, Michael A. Laidler.com. It's spelled L A I D L E R and get detail about his upcoming book. First of all, I want to thank you for your service. And secondly, thank you for taking the time to talk about these things. I know it's not easy going through it. And I also realize it's not easy talking about it, especially on the radio to someone you never met. I can tell you this. I've been through so many of these life and death calls. And there are people you thought would make it that didn't. And it's devastating. There's people that you you thought they were goners and they made it. And you're you're quite shocked. Um, But they all take a toll on you, I do believe, to some degree or another. So thank you for helping save that lady's life in Tallahassee. There was another incident you went through that also had a profound impact on you. Can you talk about that one? Absolutely, Jay. And coincidentally, this second incident was in the same exact week as the first incident as the traffic crash where I uh, to perform life-saving measures to help this woman survive. Same shift, different day, but I can remember hearing a call, a medical emergency, about a infant that had stopped breathing. So first thing in my mind, I had to get there as quickly as possible. That's my goal, to go there and help save a kid's life. And myself and my partner at the time, he, we both get there around the same time. We uh, we get there before EMS or firefighters get there. And it's a single-family residence. As soon as we get out, we, we, we the door the front door is open. So we know we're at the right place. We get up to the door, we can hear screaming and yelling and emotions in people's voice. Not anger, but of fear. We walk into the house, and there's probably five to ten people just frantic. And as soon as they see us in a uniform... They hand us a baby. Baby is maybe three months. And as soon as they hand the baby to me, I just, I look at the baby's face and it looks lifeless. I didn't know how to respond to them because now they're looking at me for help and there's nothing really I can do. We start doing CPR the best we can on a three month old baby, but we knew at the time that that baby was no longer with us. And given the excitement or, I guess, the energy that was in the house from that, it was, it was really tough for us to manage. We had to hold on to keeping everybody together until firefighters came. And I can remember maybe a few minutes later, it wasn't a few seconds, but a few minutes later, firefighters walked in and immediately they took the baby and continued on with CPR. But even the look on their face was similar to ours and similar to the family. So that incident stuck with me as much as the first one because once again being in law enforcement we're not just there to put a bad guy in in jail or to do write tickets or anything like that we're going there to save people's lives and I failed at my job that day there there was nothing I could have done differently but the fact that I could not save a life a baby's life is that at that was really tough and we didn't respond the way we should have. Once again, we didn't have a debrief at the time. We, I mean, we wasn't given any kind of formal process like, hey, this is how you process the death of a child. I was fortunate in my way because I didn't have any children, but I know my partner, I mean, he was real close to his younger siblings and stuff, and he took it as hard as I did. And it, it was a really tough experience because we trained for a lot of stuff, but not necessarily for that. That's not what you see in a training, like 
you're going to go pick up a lifeless baby. Well, the other part is you really can't train for that. It, we train for every scenario you can think of. And most of these scenarios come from past experience of other law enforcement officers. And that's where the training comes from. You can't predict everything. You said something very, very important. I believe, Michael, you said, I failed. You didn't fail. I, I get it. I wanted to be Superman. I wanted to be the guy you ripped the shirt open. There's a big ass on your chest and I'm going to make things right. I'm going to save people, but I'm not God. I'm only human. And you, you said another point that's very, very important. You knew right away that child was gone. It didn't prevent you from trying, but I take you to task. You didn't fail. You tried. I agree. And with any law enforcement officer that listens to this show or any other play that puts on a uniform, Whenever we can't do something like that, I know we always have that in us. I know I couldn't do anything different. I couldn't have prevented it. I couldn't have, I couldn't have brought the baby back to life at that point. But I knew that in my mind, there was something I wish I could have done more of because that was a very hard time for me and my partner. I know that for sure. We also, and I did this, I, I, I can't speak for you. I also critiqued myself. What could I have done better? What did I learn from that incident? What could I have done to de-escalate? And that's, by the way, a term used a lot nowadays that we were doing in the 80s. I want to take people to task. It's not a new thing. What could I have done better? How could I have handled it better? How could I save this life? All these things, and that's how you get better at what you do. And there are also senior officers that talked to us, that trained us, said, hey, knucklehead, don't do this next time, do this. And that was part of the, the, the maturing process. Did you critique yourself harshly after that? I critique myself to the point to where later that night, my friend and I, or my partner and I, did probably what some of the law enforcement do too often on incidents like that. We went and had alcoholic beverages and crab legs, and we were both very sick the next night. And as I looked back at that, that was not the healthy way to handle that. That wasn't the way that is good for our mental mindset and. I wish at the time I knew like, hey, something like that happens. You need to go debrief. You need to go see somebody. You need to get yourself in another positive environment in order to uplift yourself because that night could have been a lot worse for us because of the way we handled it. But luckily, we got through it. We know there could have been other ways that could have went wrong. And unfortunately, you and the family had to go through that. And uh, when I say, and it sounds trite when i say you know you all are my thoughts and prayers it's one thing i say the first responders that go to these calls that go to these incidents people don't realize the impact it has on them and it's it's quite often harsh and by the way back in the day we didn't have i love saying that back in my day when i was a rookie (laughs) we didn't have critical incidents we didn't have officer involved shootings we just had shootings we didn't have it what Quite often we would do after a really bad shift and really bad stuff happened is we'd go to a parking lot, get a case of beer, and we'd talk and drink. The negative part of it was the drinking became excessive for many of us. The other part of it was spending time with other people that have been through it can help you put in its proper perspective, can be beneficial. But that's the that's how we handled everything. We didn't have anything else. Yes, and I agree. And over time... What I would like to see more of are the positive sides. Hey, let's get together. We don't have to drink because not everybody can handle that. And and I've learned that through 17 years of being in law enforcement. Not everybody can handle that and do it safely. But talk to people that kind of know your situation, especially people that are there with you. 
and and talk to them and then definitely you never want to handle it by yourself that's Absolutely. never the right way to do it and by the way that that alcohol can become a problem for a lot of people that's the reason why i've been sober 30 years by the way if you know someone who's struggling with the after effects of trauma I mean, PTS, PTSD, anxiety, substance abuse. Check out Shatterproof Program for First Responders. You can get more details on our website, fhehealth.com. That's fhehealth.com. Look at our programs. Look for Shatterproof. Phenomenal people doing phenomenal things right here in Florida. And it's First Responders helping First Responders. We're talking with Michael Laidler. He started law enforcement at the age of 19. He's a career law enforcement officer. We're going to talk about the next phase of his career. Be sure to go to his website. Get more details about what he's doing, about his upcoming book, MichaelALadler.com. That's spelled L-A-I-D-L-E-R.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click like and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Miss an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with Michael Laidler calling us from Texas. He is a federal law enforcement officer. He's been in law enforcement since 19. Started with the Tallahassee, Florida Police Department. And... Uh, we were talking about a couple of very traumatic incidents you went through a couple of years into your career, 21, 22, 23 years of age. Would it be safe to say that those incidents and others, the trauma, the violence, impacted your decision-making and this career in law enforcement? You said earlier, it's a career you really wanted. You didn't realize it until you started doing it, how much you loved it. Now you are in the federal law enforcement field. Were these incidents having to do with driving your decision-making? Jay, absolutely. I think every experience that we have, especially when we reflect and look how they build us, put us on a path to where we're at and where we're going. And as I have grown in the last 17 years, I have learned how to actually build myself off of these experiences, not just letting them be experiences that are untapped or not looked at, but trying to figure out the learning lessons I get from each of them. And from the early part on in my life, especially being a police officer, there were a lot of experiences, especially the two that we talked about earlier, that really helped me understand where I need to be at. And I, I'm not going to lie. I did not know what some of these experiences were going to mean back when I was in my mid to late 20s. But as I grew my own self-development and I was able to understand my own awareness, I started to realize the direction that my life was taking me. And that's what kind of led to me going to another agency, at that being Border Patrol, and then get into federal corrections shortly thereafter. But all the experiences that I got through all these careers have really pushed me to the level of, of thinking differently. Because I think if I just stayed in one agency, 
I would only have thought one way, but the fact that I had the different agencies now under my belt, it really helped guide my mind to think differently. And it's a, a different mission statement, a different mission with Border Patrol than there is city policing. Uh, a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. And by the way, for those who are not aware, Border Patrol is really getting a lot of unnecessary, unneeded, unwarranted heat, primarily from politicians and the news media. I, I'm not going to belabor that point, but the whole whipping with the horses was a lie to begin with that it went too far. I don't really understand a lot of what Border Patrol does, and I don't think a lot of Americans really get what they do. In a nutshell, what would you say would be the one thing that people don't understand about their mission? First and foremost, for anybody that's in Border Patrol or that aspires, it's an amazing career, guys. I love my brothers and sisters that are still there, and due to certain family concerns, that's the only reason I left. When it comes to what they do on a day-to-day basis, is they prevent terrorists and drugs from coming in. That's the number one goal. Now, I know there's a lot of media that talks about illegal entries and criminals coming in, and that's what Border Patrol tries to do. But when you look at the numbers game and the big picture of what goes on, there's just not enough people. There's not enough agents for the amount of land that's covered. I can remember times where I was following a group of illegal aliens and there would be 20. I knew there were 20 because I would see 20. By the time I got to them, there were four. And that's the reality of life. Anything we do try to perform on, there, there, there has to be a bigger picture. So a lot of the stuff I see in the news now, it's been happening since at least I was in Border Patrol. It just wasn't popular back then. So some of the things that are hurting Border Patrol are some of the new laws. And I think the numbers are increasing, but they're kind of going back to late 90s, early 2000s numbers where people are just trying to get here as quickly as they can. But Border Patrol has a job that nobody knows about. You're out there by yourself a lot. It's a little different from when I was a police officer because I can call on the radio and say, yeah, I need some assistance and I will get somebody in a minute. As Border Patrol, you're out there and there's miles between you and your partner. You're on, on different terrain. You're in different land. And it's just a different feeling when you're trying to handle what you're doing out there. But their main goal, which they, they do a great job of, is preventing terrorists and drugs from getting into the country. And it's nonstop. That's the thing. These guys, these men and women, they do a phenomenal job. They do the best they can with what they have all the time. And they're never perfect all the time, no matter how hard you try. They're going to not stop. I'm talking about cartels uh, south of the border that with human trafficking, with narcotics, with weapons, with explosives, whatever it might be. They're not going to stop because that's their livelihood. They're going to find ways to penetrate. What I find to be difficult to understand, Michael, to be totally honest with you, is something you said. When you work as a city police like you and I did, help is a, a short distance away. In the Border Patrol, you could be out in the middle of the wilderness absolutely by yourself at night, and you've got 20 or 30 people that are all committing some sort of crime that you've got to try to confront and apprehend. Yes, and that's a whole other mindset in itself because there's been times when my radio didn't work because I was so far out and I would approach a group of illegal aliens or people that were carrying drugs and I had to make a choice. Is it worth my life to get that or not? And sometimes when you're when you're not in the, the role, you don't understand it as much, but you don't have help. So you really have to decide on what am I going to do? Is this worth my life? Is this worth what's going to happen next? And if you decide that, then you have to carry it out. And a lot of the Border Patrol agents that I've worked with, they were great. They 
push that level because they didn't want to see bad people coming into the country. They did not want that. So they do put their lives on the line just as much as any other law enforcement officer in the country. What's the old saying? Discretion is a better part of valor. And quite often, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't have that discretion. I could not not pursue someone. And, and I, that put me in hazardous situations and it put other people in hazardous situations. And fortunately, everybody worked worked out well for everybody. But it, there was a toll. We talked about earlier that exposure, that kind of violence takes on someone. So when I, I went to New Mexico recently to speak at a, a law enforcement event, a community event, and it was in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And that environment, flying into El Paso and then driving was a total shock to me coming from the East Coast. It is not like what you, it's almost like you're driving on a different planet. And I was talking to this group and I said, I could imagine being on Highway 54, 30 miles from anybody and having to do a traffic stop. And traffic stop, let's just say it's a van and it winds up having five people in there and things go south. You are on your own. There is no help for a long way. Yeah, you really had to make your decision. I know in Border Patrol, kind of like highway troopers, it's usually you against a lot more people at that point. And your tactics have to be strong. Your verbal judo has to be strong. Oh, yeah. Your your ability to kind of use your communication has to, has to be there because it is just one of you and multiple of them. And sometimes, and, by the way, that harsh language is what people take offense to. Oh, that cop was so rude. I love the term verbal judo. What to talk about that? Any length at a later date. One of the things that, that you have done in your party career, you've really begun to transition into speaking. You got a book coming out. You've got all these other things you do. What is that? So one of the things that I've really grown myself on and really pride myself on in the last five years or so was working on my self awareness and my leadership development. And based on that, I actually opened up a speaking business back in 2017. Now, I took a couple of years off for a number of reasons, but what my focus is, is building up those areas in law enforcement officers. Law enforcement officers are my brothers and sisters, and I want to see them grow. I want to see them succeed because it's one of the areas that I feel, at least, as being in this field for 17 years, that's undervalued when it comes to personal growth and development. We have so many other things that we have to train on that your mindset and personal growth is usually on the back burner. My book will be launching next month. It's actually called Greatness Beyond the Badge. And in that book, I'm talking about self-awareness strategies that anybody, specifically law enforcement officers, can use today. Who makes who are you as a person? Why should you develop yourself? And how do you go about developing yourself in a manner to be successful? And these are things that I've learned because I actually studied other industries. I went to college. I read a lot of books because I I feel like this is something that's really needed for what we do as law enforcement officers. And I people, agree with you 100%. We are running out of time. The name of your book and where can people get more information about you and what you offer? It's Greatness Beyond the Badge. And you can check my website out, which is www.michaelalater.com. Or if you're looking to get the book and kind of pursue it when it comes out, Greatness dot michaelalater.com slash workbook. Michael, and thanks so much for being guest on the show. For all you do, it's all very much appreciated. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. 
The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.